0: Well, we have heard God's Word, so let's now ask for God's blessing uh, on our time in His Word this morning, and then we'll get back in here to Genesis chapter 1. Let's pray. God, now we pray that you would enable us to hear with our hearts the word that we have just heard with our ears. You would take what we've heard and what we're going to hear and cause it to implant itself within us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would cause your word this morning to take root in our hearts and then to bear fruit in our lives as you use it to increase our love for you, to show us the, the beauty of our Savior, and Lord, as you show us how great you are and how beautiful you are and how glorious you are, may it humble us, may it draw us to you, and may it cause us to live as worshipers of our Creator. We pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. Well, we are returning back uh, once again to the text of Genesis 1 here this morning, the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, the account of the creation of the world as told from the Creator's own perspective, uh, and yet in language that is accessible to and, and, and beneficial to creatures like us who are far, far below Him. Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3... Um, presents so many foundational ideas, so many foundational truths in relationship to the rest of the Bible and to the gospel and to the message of Christianity. And so we've been moving kind of slow so far through these opening chapters to make sure that we don't miss anything essential, make sure we don't miss anything crucial, and and to give ourselves some time to digest the most crucial truths taught here in the text. So today, we're going to wrestle with one of the more controversial, you could say, hotly debated issues included in the interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. It's the issue of how God created the heavens and the earth, how he did it, and how long it took him to do it. That is, today we're going to consider, we're going to we're going to look at the method of creation, the way God created all things, and the days of creation, the the length of time that it took Him to create all things. And I suspect, you know, just me saying that, um, that it's not too difficult to see why these would be hotly debated topics, since the widely held presuppositions of our day are, are that the universe and the earth as we now know it came into being gradually and progressively over billions of years of evolution and adaptation with no help from any outside source or being. When the way that Genesis 1 presents the existence of the world is as beginning instantaneously and absolutely over the span of a few days at the command of an almighty creator, which, which creates a dilemma for those who want to trust the Bible, but who also see modern, scientific, evolutionary, naturalistic explanations of our origins to be the most objective and evidence-based and therefore trustworthy explanations of our origins. Can these views, can these things be reconciled? Um, do Christians have to bury their heads in the sand and stand against science and be anti science in order to believe the Bible? How can the Bible be true if it contradicts seemingly objective evidence and the most logical arguments regarding the origins of the world? These are all good questions, but they are controversial ones, even among Christians. And they're the kinds of questions that we're going to try to wrestle with a bit this morning, okay? And again, we want to consider the method of creation. That's our first point. That's the first main heading in our outline. The method of creation, how God created the world. And then we'll look at the days of creation and how long it took him to do these things. So the method of creation first and as it concerns the method of creation, how God created the world, the way he created the world, the way he created everything in it, what scripture highlights over and over again is that all things were created and formed simply by the word of the Lord. Or you could say that all things were created by divine fiat or divine decree meaning that God said that specific things should exist and then those things sprang forth into existence by his all-powerful word. You see this throughout Genesis 1, don't we? You, you, you might have heard it as Jamie was reading it for us. The phrase, and God said, provides kind of a rhythm for reading through the chapter. So let's go back and look at some of the places where that phrase comes up. It comes up first in verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Or verse 6, And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And it was so. Or verse 9, And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Or verse 11, and God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, let plants or, or let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. Verse fourteen And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so or verse 20 and God said let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens or verse 24 and God said let the earth bring forth living creatures each according to their kinds livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth each according to their kinds and it was so and God said, and it was so, it is intentionally connected throughout Genesis 1. Provides a, a, a very structured rhythm for working through Genesis 1. And God said, and it was so. Other scriptures have this same emphasis. Uh, and, and if you want to flip to some of these places, you're more than welcome to. We'll go fast. Psalm 33 is the first place. Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9 has this same emphasis that all things came into existence by the word of the Lord. Psalm 33, verse six says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? Verse nine, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Or Psalm 148, which we read, uh, we heard as our call to worship this morning. Psalm 148, verse 3, praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the earth. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Hebrews 11 and verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of the Lord, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 5, speaking of false teachers who deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of the Lord. <laughs> Now the one exception to this rule of course in Genesis 1, Genesis 2 is the way God creates man, right? In uh, Genesis 2, 7 uh, we see that God forms man from the dust of the ground. That's deliberately different. Um, but even then, the way man comes alive. Do you remember how Adam comes to life? He comes to life by the breath of the Lord which is a concept, a word very similar and, and has a direct relationship to the word of the Lord, the speech of the Lord. Man comes to life by the breath of the Lord. Genesis 2 says God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So how did God create all things? How did he do it? He spoke and things sprang into existence in obedience to his word. That's how he did it, which deserves some really serious meditation on our part, that the heavens and the earth were brought into being by the mere word of the Lord. Think about that, by divine fiat, by divine decree, that God willed and spoke all things into existence, and by all things, we're talking about the universe and everything in it. Scripture doesn't use that language for no reason. It doesn't reveal this truth to us for no reason. This isn't some, you know, tidbit for Bible trivia. And I don't think there's any good reason to take it as symbolic or allegorical or metaphorical language either. It's critical language. It's deliberate language. It's intentional language. And it's critical because it reveals the fullness of God's wisdom and omnipotence, his eternal power and his beauty and his creativity and his unrivaled glory like I think no other single statement in the Bible could. All God has to do to create the universe is think it up and will it into existence. I mean, I've said before, I can't, I can't make an ice cream cone come into existence in that way, right? I, I can't make my bed that way. God thinks up the universe and then wills it into existence and it all obeys. All God has to do is think it up and wish it were so. I can't do anything that way. Hardly anything. Yet God calls light into existence in that way. Light. And he, and, he, and he puts the skies in their place in that way. And he sets boundaries for the seas in that way. And he raises up land that way. And he makes whales and dolphins that way. And pelicans and grizzly bears and bison that way. The Lord brings man to life with his breath, with a word and more than that, he, he, he thinks all this stuff up without anyone offering him suggestions. There are no beta versions of the universe, right? There's no trial versions. There's no pre-existent life forms. There's no clay and bricks and genetic codes and scientific laws in place to give him a list of possible things he could create. Well, here are your options, God. ABC, take your pick. He thought all this stuff up with no textbooks, no classrooms, no education, no practice runs. He simply conceived of the universe and everything in it, not to mention the course of events that would unfold once the world was made. And then he commanded those things to exist. And in an instant, they came forth into being. we got to think, I mean, who are we messing with here, right? Who are we messing with here? If this doesn't communicate the vastness and the wisdom and the beauty and the knowledge and the greatness and the glory of our God to our hearts, we're not listening. Our God is holy. There is no one like him. He's not some small, manageable, predictable deity that we can manipulate with our religious activities and short-sighted, selfish prayers and spiritual opinions. Our God is a vast, immense, independent, incoercible, omnipotent, incorruptible king. He has no peers. He needs no counselor. He is high and exalted and above all, and he is different than anything you've ever seen and anyone we've ever known. Psalm 33, verses 8 and 9 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Did you hear that when we read it earlier? Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? For he spoke, and it came to be. And he commanded, and it stood firm. The right response to this doctrine is to stand in awe of God stand in awe of God Now the the term theologians have used for a long time to describe this sort of creation is the is the term ex nihilo maybe you've heard that phrase you know that phrase it means out of nothing God created all things ex nihilo like there was nothing but God for an eternity in the past and then there was suddenly something Namely, the universe. All of a sudden which seems to be the very point of the scriptures that say that all things were brought into existence by the word of the Lord. There were no laws, there were no rules that governed how he created his creation. Created laws, created rules that would govern the things that he created. He created the laws of science. He created the law of gravity, law of, laws of thermodynamics, laws of biology and chemistry and physics and all the rest. He created physical energy, he created matter, he created space. He created time. There was nothing but him. And then by his will and his word, there was something other than him. Uh, Augustine, St. Augustine summarizes this well in his confessions, his, his uh, book, The Confessions. He says, for you created them from nothing, not from your own substance or from some matter not created by yourself or already in existence, but from matter which you created at one and the same time as the things that you made from it, since there was no interval of time before you gave form to this formless matter. This is the biblical testimony. It really is. So what was the method of creation? How did God create the world and everything in it? The way the Bible talks about the method of creation is, is in this way, that God speaks. God spoke. God spoke. And all things spring into existence. He created with words. And whatever he desired to come into existence, dutifully obeyed without hesitation. But how about the timing of creation? How about how long it took God to create? What about the days of creation as they're referred to here in Genesis 1? The days of creation. Regardless of what you believe about the age of the earth, the, the age of the material universe, on this point, we have to be honest. And just say that whenever the Bible speaks of the length of time that it took God to create all things, it speaks in terms of days. Days. That's the language of Genesis 1 and the first part of Genesis 2. Remember verse Three in Genesis one here it says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light and God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning. The first day or one day. The same pattern goes on in verse eight, the second day. Verse 13, the third day. Verse four, uh, 19, the fourth day. Verse 23, we see a fifth day. Verse 31, we see the sixth day. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, we get a seventh day. When God rests from all his creative work. That language is also repeated. Interestingly, if you want to know, like, how did the other Old Testament writers interpret this? How did how did uh, Moses think about this? What did he think this meant? What what did they think of this language? Well, it's repeated. It's utilized in other places in the in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. In Exodus chapter twenty, this language is used as the as the ground or the basis for the Sabbath command. There. God says through Moses, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and then rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Exodus 31 and verse 17, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 32 talks about the day the the single day that God created man on the earth. And by the way, you know, uh it's it's kind of common kind of, it's often a common objection to the books of Moses that oh that's Moses but that's not Jesus, but actually if you look at how Jesus views the book of Moses, the books of Moses, how Jesus, what he thinks of the Old Testament scriptures, you learn that he thinks very highly of these words. Very highly of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus talks about how trustworthy and true and right and good the Old Testament scriptures are. So Jesus is, is uh, signing off on these words just so we know. And so whenever scripture speaks of the time it took God to create the universe, it speaks in terms of days. That's not really debated. But of course, the question here is, what sort of days are these? Are these literal days? Are these 24-hour days or something else? Now, I would argue that the most natural, the most grammatically honest, the most historically consistent understanding of these days is that they are actual, literal, single calendar days, 24-hour days. Why is that? I'll give you some reasons. First, uh, calendar day is the most natural reading of the word day in Genesis 1, especially when when every day ends with the phrase, and there was evening and there was morning. Every day ends like that, which is interesting language, kind of maybe needless language if we're not talking about actual days. Secondly, if day here in Genesis 1 means age or long period, as, as some have suggested, which we'll get to in, in a bit, um, if it means something other than calendar day, literal day, actual day, then evening and morning and even night here in Genesis 1 must also mean something other than their natural use, which would stretch the meaning not just of the word day, but of all these words. All of them together. Third, if every day in Genesis one is joined with a number, you would think that's significant. One day, two days, three days, and so on. And every, every everywhere else that that happens in Scripture, the reference is to a literal, actual day. Fourth, Genesis one fourteen. If you look at verse fourteen. Days are actually directly distinguished there from years by the sun and moon. So already by verse 14, we have the concept of years and seasons and ages and all of that. So why not use that language to describe the length of, length of time God created the world if in fact it's a matter of years and not days? Fifth, Moses, the, the human author of Genesis, Seems to understand the creation week of Genesis 1 as a week of actual days. We see that in Exodus chapter 20, what I read just a bit ago, where he says directly, for, the, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. Sixth, Jesus and the apostles affirmed God's creative work as a historical event, which I think is important not as some long, essentially unending process. You get that in Matthew 19 and even Second Corinthians chapter 4 where creation is an event. It's a climactic, instantaneous event. Something that happens quickly, something that is, it happens and then it's over. Not a work that continues on and on and on to, even to this very day. Seventh, the idea of literal days is supported by the scriptural teaching, I think, and the scriptural emphasis that everything was created by the word of the Lord. Not some gradual process. We've looked at all those passages already. All of them describe the process of creation as a process that happens quickly and instantaneously and suddenly and dramatically. So I agree with Alan Ross. Al- uh, Ross is a reputable, uh, careful Old Testament scholar who says that it seems inescapable that Genesis presents the creation in six days. Which is probably why until the last 150 to 200 years or so, the vast majority of Bible interpreters understood the days of Genesis 1 to be actual 24-hour calendar days. So why would anyone question whether this is what's intended here in Genesis 1. We need to think about that, and we also need to be clear on this point. The only reason you'd believe what Genesis 1 says about the origins of the universe is if you believe that God is telling us something about those origins in Genesis 1, right? That Genesis 1 is God's authoritative word. The only reason you'd care what is said here in Genesis 1 is if you believe that about Genesis 1, that this is God's word. If you don't believe it's God's word, you can easily throw it out. You can ignore it. You can, you know, not pay attention to it. It doesn't matter what it says because it's not authoritative over us. So the only reason you'd care what it says is if you believe it is. But the only reason you'd question whether the idea that God created the universe in a span of six literal days the only reason you'd question if that's what's really intended here in Genesis 1 is if you believe that scientific arguments that present the age of the earth and the age of the universe is billions of years old and that it all came into its current state by way of millions and billions of years of gradual evolution is also true. Which, which a sizable number of Christians do believe. So then over the Last century and a half or so, 150, 200 years, many Christians have tried to show how Scripture and, and modern evolutionary theory are compatible. And they've done so in, in various ways, which has led to a number of different, um, you know, sort of adjusted interpretations of the days of the creation week. Uh, theories, you know, or, or interpretive theories that, that uh, argue that the days here are long periods of time, long geological ages. That's what might be referred to as the day age theory. They argue, some of them, that there are long periods between the days of creation. That's what's called the gap theory, that the days are actual days, they're literal days, but there's long ages between them. There's others who interpret that the days are uh, days in relation to God's work. So they're sort of analogous to calendar days, but they ultimately say nothing about the actual length of time it took God to create, since God's perspective of time is very different from ours. There are others who interpret Genesis 1 as, as non-literal history. They, uh, uh, they interpret it as uh, poetic or, or parallel to ancient Near Eastern creation myths. And those last couple of views see Genesis as non-history. At, le- at least these opening chapters, chapter one, two, and three, as non-history. That these words are poetic, non-historical accounts of the creation of the world. And and uh, while you might find insight from commentators, you might find insight from theologians who hold to these series. You'll find good information, I think, about or at least I have, about the background of Genesis, the genre of Genesis, even even uh, good information about the ancient Near Eastern world and how ancient cultures related to Israel and all of that and their scriptures, among other things, I still think that there are sufficient reasons for finding these interpretations unconvincing and for seeing God in Genesis 1 as actually teaching, actually communicating something very different from and actually in opposition against modern naturalistic evolutionary theories of our origins. For me, those reasons include these. Okay, we'll spend a lot of time on the first one, more time on the first one. And it's the, the fact that there is much that should and much that must be questioned about materialistic evolutionary explanations of the origins of the universe. There's a lot that needs to be questioned about those theories, like how exactly does everything ultimately come from nothing? How does that happen? Nothingness produces nothing. Nothing comes from nothingness. Um, and there's there's actually a quote uh, here that I thought was good from R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, who's now with the Lord, who said, if there was ever a time when there was nothing... The only thing there could possibly be now couldn't possibly be now because the only thing there could be would be nothing and nothing is not something. Not even a little something, not even a microscopic something, not even a sub, at, at, atomic, subatomic something. It is nothing. And if there was ever a time when there was nothing, he says, there would be nothing now. And by the way, science agrees with that. Logic agrees with that. Philosophy agrees with that. Everyone agrees with this. And yet there are so many who are willing to ignore and contradict that basic truth in their explanation of how the universe and everything got here. Naturalistic, materialistic explanations of our origins can't answer the most basic question of all. Why is there something rather than nothing? How could this be? Well, one simple way around that would be to say that maybe everything came from something after all. Maybe some un- unformed, unorganized, unintelligent, unconscious something. Okay, but how did that something get here? And how did it produce? How did it become so organized as to produce the universe as it now exists? Random accidental existence of all things is not a scientific explanation of things. It's not a scientific explanation of our origin. Or how did the Big Bang happen? How did it happen? What made it happen? It can't be scientifically observed. It can't be randomly reproduced. See, the, the reality is that materialistic, naturalistic, evolutionary explanations for the origins of our universe are not nearly so objective, and they're not nearly so evidence-based. As many people believe, there are as many assumptions in evolutionary theories as there are in creationary ones. In fact, those who say that supernatural explanations for the origin of the universe must be ruled out from the beginning in order to explore the issue objectively and scientifically have themselves made a massive, massive assumption. Douglas Kelly uh, Reformed theologians, as sincere as such claims may be, they fail to realize that naturalistic evolution is itself a supreme act of faith, a religion, if you will. Philip Johnson, Philip E. Johnson, not the Phil Johnson that some of you might know out, out at uh, John MacArthur's church. Philip E. Johnson is a, or was a longtime uh, professor of law at UC Berkeley he made this point for many years, actually, in the 90s, this very point, uh, through a number of books and articles where he argued pretty forcefully, in my opinion, that, that evolutionary theory is not based on, as he says, inc- incontrovertible empirical evidence, but upon highly controversial philosophical assumptions. Namely, that there either is no God or that God is not necessary to understanding the origins of the universe. But let's be honest here, if you if you do rule out divine supernatural explanations of our origins, and then you start looking around at our world, you start looking around at the universe and you notice how complex and, and organized and meticulously put together it is, the only possible explanation for understanding our origins is an explanation that involves years and years and years and years of progression and development because it's obvious to everyone that our marvelous universe could have never come into its current state or form quickly on its own. If it came into its current form on its own, there's no way that that happened overnight, certainly not over the span of six days. So then I would argue, to, to say it again, that there's a lot to question not only in naturalistic evolutionary theories themselves, but in the presuppositions that uphold them. And so it's not that one is uh, totally objective and totally evidence-based, one theory, and then the other is just blind faith, or whatever you want to call it. That's not what this is. And so that's one big reason I don't think that there's a great need to reconcile the message of Genesis 1 with modern scientific theories or, or so-called consensus of our origins. Another reason I don't think Genesis 1 is compatible with modern evolutionary theories is simply that, the, that no one would come to an understanding of evolutionary theory by careful study and interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2. You just wouldn't meaning that you would never get this explanation of our origins, never get the, this explanation of our nature from Genesis 1 and 2 or anywhere else in Scripture. You simply wouldn't, which is why no one believed, really, these kind of theories until the 1800s. Certainly no interpreter of Scripture. And then one final reason I see Scripture speaking directly against evolutionary theories is the fact that Everywhere scripture refers to God's work in creation, as we've talked about, it uses the language of a climactic event, not a process. By the word of the Lord, in dramatic fashion, as we've discussed, ex nihilo, out of nothing. So then, how long did it create God, or did it take God to create all things? It sure seems like we're talking days. Days and not years. Six days, to be precise. Now, is there evidence uh, for a universe that's very old? I actually think there is. Um, I actually think there is. The, what I would say to that, or how I'd respond to that, is to say that, that I don't think that means necessarily that the creation is very old. Because the point of creation is to show and proclaim the glory of God. It's not to say stuff about itself necessarily. It's not self-referential. It's, it, it, it speaks of something else, something beyond itself. So if you look at the universe and you say, man, it sure seems like this has been around for a very long time. And if all of it is meant to, to communicate something about the creator, then what would it communicate? Wow, he's been around for a very long time. He's very big. He's vast. I don't like the word big. Vast. He's immense. So, does it look old? It might. It kind of does. Does it mean it is old? No, I think it is pointing to a greater, higher reality than itself. Now I don't want to overstate the importance of this issue here um, because it's one of those issues in, in Christian doctrine, Christian theology that is debated by people who share a common love for Christ and a common desire to understand and submit to his word. Okay, so I want to say this clearly. You can be a Christian and not interpret the days of Genesis 1 as literal calendar days. There is such a thing as what's called theistic evolution. Uh, there are Christians who don't think the point of Genesis 1 is ultimately to record the events or the work of creation, but to show the supremacy of Israel's God over the gods of the ancient pagans. And I would actually agree with that. I just think there's more to it than that as well. You can even be a member of our church and hold views uh, like what I've argued against this morning in so far that you believe the doctrine of the Trinity, you believe in Jesus as the only Son of God, you believe that he died for your sins on the cross, you believe he rose from the dead and is coming again, and you embrace scripture as God's inerrant word, and you can at least tolerate your pastor's teaching that Genesis 1 speaks of the creation of the world as taking place over the course of six literal days. So I don't want to make too much of this. At the same time, I do think that this is one of those issues that, that sort of exposes or can expose what we really think about the authority and the clarity of the Bible, and that demonstrates our willingness to embrace God's word over the word of men. I think it's interesting, I, f- I find it very interesting that whenever science and scripture seem to conflict with one another, that most people, even Christians, believe sort of automatically that it is scripture that needs to be reinterpreted. What if it's the other way around? There have been instances throughout history where scripture did need to be reinterpreted because people got it wrong. But certainly that's not the case in every situation. What if it's the other way around? If you believe that the Bible is God's word, in some cases at least, it has to be the other way around. Is this one of those cases? I think it probably is. You may not, but at least we can agree to keep thinking through the issues with our Bibles open. That should be our goal That's the days of creation. Now, what should we take away from these things? I want to ask that question uh, before we wrap up our time in God's Word here. I want to reflect on some of the main takeaways from the things that we've covered this morning, even if quickly. What do we take away as we've from from the truth of Scripture when it talks about the method of creation and the days of creation? What does the truth that the universe was created, formed, and filled by the omnipotent Word of God over the course of six days teach us? Well, first, I think it teaches us that we have a Creator and that He is magnificent. We have a Creator and He is magnificent. The, the world doesn't exist randomly or without cause or by chance. God created the world directly. And this is amazing. This is unrivaled. This is unparalleled. This means he is without peers. He's high and holy and exalted and supreme. There is no one like him. We have a creator and he is magnificent. Second, it teaches us that we have a purpose and it is good. We have a purpose and it is good. You know, evolutionary theories can't provide for or tell anyone what the purpose of life is, and there are some who are honest about that. Um, there's a professor out of uh, Cornell University, professor who's a who's an evolutionist and a historian of science, who says that the implications of modern science are clearly inconsistent with most religious traditions. No inherent moral or ethical laws exist, nor are there absolute guiding principles for human society. And he puts it as honestly as I've ever seen someone put it. He says, The universe cares nothing for us, and we have no ultimate meaning in life. Now, there's your pat on the back for this morning. Go, you know, be warm and be filled. Naturalistic explanations of our origins can't tell us why we're here. And if they're honest about why we're here, they'd say we're, there's no point in us being here. Except we all know inherently that that's not true. We all know that that's not true. No one lives their life like that is true because it's not true. Genesis 1 tells us why it's not true. We are here intentionally. We are here deliberately, which means we have a purpose. And that purpose is to glorify and enjoy our Creator forever through His Son, Jesus Christ. Third, this teaches us that we have a God who speaks and we ought to listen to Him. We have a God who speaks and we ought to listen to Him. This is one of the main things that stands out in Genesis 1 as God speaks the world into existence. Our God is a speaking God. Our God is a God who communicates. Uh, our God is a God who makes himself known, who lets himself be heard. And it's a vital point because it is by and according to the word of the Lord that man is supposed to live. The same God who we see here speaking the world into existence is going to very soon be speaking directly to the people that he created instructing them and commanding them to live their lives in a specific way. The same voice that brought light into the world instantaneously without the help of the sun is soon going to be saying to the first humans, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And they, just like all of us, are going to have to wrestle with the question of whether they can trust that word when the real question should be, how can we not trust that word? If God can bring the world into existence with his all-powerful word, whenever he speaks, we ought to listen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that you are a God who speaks to your people. You are a God who reveals yourself to your creatures. That you initiate relationship with us by making yourself known to us. Lord, we thank you for revealing your ways, your character, your power, your beauty, your glory to us here in Genesis 1. We pray that you would help us to hear and understand and receive and apply what you've said for your glory. Help us know what to do with what we've heard. We pray that you do that for the glory of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.